and the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. Uh, as always, brought to you by those fine folks at Cooper Tires, and with additional support from the equally fine, some would even say finer people at the Justice Brothers. I'm Graham Goodwin, and this week again, joining me as Marshall Pruitt's obviously is away doing other much more important things right now, and we'll add in. Get well soon, Gibral. We're rooting for you. I'm rooting for you too, MP. Uh, joining me, Stephen Kilby, my deputy editor on DailySportsCar.com and also the WC correspondent for Racer.com, uh, where you'll be able to pick up this and many other five things from Marshall's podcast series. Week in sports cars, we look into the events of the past week and the coming week and beyond uh, with the help of some fabulous questions that you've supplied to us by various social media on Reddit groups for WC, for USCR, uh, on the Facebook page of the Marshall Pro Podcast, and of course via Twitter. Um, and we've got a fantastic range again after a sporting weekend where it has to be said that, well, a bit of a weird one really, uh, Stephen. It, you know, we cover motorsport, we cover what I think is the most exciting form of motorsport, and yet by far the most exciting sporting event of the last weekend was cricket. Oh yeah, it was. Wasn't it just fantastic? <laughs> we can have an English moment right now and just and just sing the praises of the fact that we are the only country in the world to have a football World Cup, a cricket World Cup, and a rugby World Cup. Two two cricket World Cups. Yeah, or well, technically two cricket World Cups. Not technically, actually. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I should say this, by the way, Earl Bamber, Brendan Hartley, your boys took a hell of a beating. Yeah, it was bad, wasn't it? <laughs> you have our sympathies. Just not very many of them. (laughs) (laughs) And not very long either. Let's crack on um, with questions. Um, Stephen, where are we going to start this week? We'll start with Weck, Aslam's, Elms and Akko. It's a fantastic afternoon. I think we should should start with... Well, we are, as you know, you're here in the, uh, what what can I say, the Mission Control. Um, Yeah, it's not shed. Uh, Mission Control for uh, DSC. I've pressed the button that makes the, the usually four floors down into the earth... Uh, come just uh, above the, uh, the the Goodwin Garden for the moment, so it can be seen on satellite right now, but not for much longer, as we get ready uh, for what's going to be an exciting week to come with the European Le Mans Series and Michelin Le Mans Cup going to Barcelona. First time we've had ACO Wheels racing there for how many years? Well, since 2009. So, so I would have been about 12. Yeah, I was basically a fetus. Yeah, Good God, dear, dear me. And following on from that, with the ever-so-handy two days in between, um, uh, we'll be uh, hanging on. You'll be there for both days of the WC Prologue with most of the teams, all the teams for this year's championship. The WC represented for a couple of days' testing, a, a huge amount of testing available. Uh, the following weekend will be the Spa 24 Hours, but between that, I'll be coming home for just 24 hours for a book launch for uh, my good friend the, the founding editor of Daily Sports Car Malcolm Cracknell launching his first novel Taking the World by Storm um, there is a motor racing link to that one uh, as anybody that's read any of the kind of previews of the book would appreciate but we're, I might actually pop in a cheeky plug for that next next uh, next week as well but for now we're going to crack on with your questions fire them at me like a frenzied I don't know, World Cup cricketer. Fantastic. We're going to start with James Counter on Facebook. He says, what do you think of moving the Ilmes race at Barcelona to a night race? Me personally, hashtag, I love the idea. I often get frustrated that we see these cars designed for run, that are run for 24 hours at Le Mans, but that's the only time we get to see them run at night. I agree. I think it's, it's exciting. It's nice to see a bit of a format change. I think it's something that will... 
uh, play well for those that follow the LMS. Hopefully, it will add some people to follow the LMS. Um, you know, and it's been reflected here on uh, the weekend sports cars previously, uh, amongst if not the best endurance racing in the world right now. Um, it's good to see that uh, the ACO and LMEM are prepared to think about mixing it up in terms of race format. We've seen it happen in Asia with a longer race. We're going to see Race Into Darkness um, there as well. It's a pang th- this year. Uh, we've got Barcelona Into Darkness. We've obviously had the, well, at times criticised, certainly commented upon, uh, mix-up of uh, race lengths for the coming season of the WEC, which I think is a good thing. Whether or not you agree that the right races are the right places are the right lengths is a separate question, but it, I think it's a good thing to mix it up. Uh, so, yes, I think it's a good thing. Can't wait to see the cars racing into the night. Be interesting to see how Johnny Palmer and I cope with whatever lighting we've got available because it's, it's well into darkness. Uh, you're going to be the man up in the press room while I'm sitting in a darkened room with Johnny Palmer. That's you a terrifying... were used to racing at night, you Absolutely. in that room. <laughs> yeah, we are. A completely, completely black room about the size of an average biscuit tin. Um, but uh, you're going to be the one that's going to be out there and watching events. You're looking forward to it? Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. And I think one of the things I'm looking forward to most is seeing how... Yeah, the LMP3s are at night. It's very rare that we actually see LMP3s yeah, right. at night. And I think it's it's really underrated the fact that a lot of these LMP3 drivers who may step into P2 in the next couple of years are going to get a better chance to do some night running before they jump into something like Le Mans. And I think we've seen that over the years, haven't we, where we've seen drivers step from P3 to P3, P2 and it's been a bit overwhelming at yeah. times for them to jump straight into racing at night Le Mans in a, a new P2 car. I agree. It's a, it's a great point. You're absolutely right. I'm trying to think of it. Instances, we, I think we had the Ginetta that won um, the Brick Car 24 Hours. That was the longest race by far any kind of um, P3 car had done at all at that point. But there's not been very much more. Golf 12 Golf hours. 12, but it's, it's so bright. It's so <laughs> bright. Derby, it's not really that much. But, I uh, think it's going to be quite a dark circuit. It's I think it's going to be... For, uh, there, there is some lighting, but uh, don't, so we're certainly not talking about raising under the floodlights, as we would be if it was Bahrain or Sepang. Uh, this would be an altogether different gravy. Mm, that's going to be fantastic. Um, second question is from Rob Chalmers on Facebook. Hey, Rob. He says, Why do the FIA feel the need to massage my cynicism um, when they announce the Le Mans EOT? I think we are, want, are truly wanting to push technology. Shouldn't Toyota Gazoo Racing start without a lap stint advantage or maybe even, bear with me, be given a disadvantage to counter the two-plus-second cap, um, the lap pace advantage? Imagine for a second the FIA said to Ford, seeing how uh, seeing how lower weight has obvious efficiency benefits and you're the only team with a carbon tub, we're going to let you run two seconds a lap quicker than any other team in the class and let you run a lap longer per stint, partially saving you a stop over the race distance. Imagine the kickoff that would ensue. We're imagining a lot here. Um, I think we get the question. I think the the answer is yeah, they should. We should be at a stage now where we've had last season. I think there was some legitimacy attached to the arguments placed by Toyota. Um, they were clearly listened to for all sorts of reasons um, by the ACO. But I think that time is gone now. We are setting up for. A brave new world next season with hypercar. That is going to be a major challenge for the technical departments um, at the ACO around uh, the balance of performance that's going to be required. There's no doubt that that's a major factor. Uh, and yes, I think uh, very firmly that now is the time for two things to happen. One is to test the processes that are going to be required to um, uh, to equalise performance across the different uh, 
technologies that are going to be involved in hypercar. There's the opportunity to do that pretty easily with the current LMP1 crop uh, to test whether or not the basic systems, the basic calculations have got validity and um, <clears throat> and whether or not you've got it right. It might show up some some pretty basic uh, basic syst- systemic uh, stuff. So yes, I think there's that. The other part is we want to see some racing. And I don't believe actually deep down that Tota want anything different. I think there's a political point why the arguments have been made. There's some political points as to why those arguments thus far have been accepted. But now this is about carrying forward a world championship with confidence. And there simply has to be a level playing field. It is simple to make the arguments about the difference that technology makes in the TS-050. It is, by far, the most technologically advanced, stunning piece of engineering currently racing anywhere. Forget anything else with a different label on it. It's that car. That's the car that is the most relevant, the most astonishing, uh, the most advanced technology uh, uh, technology car racing anywhere in the world right now and will be for one more year uh you want to basically when you're making those arguments not be given get not give anybody the opportunity to make a counter argument based on a real set you're racing you're you know you're, you're putting new technology up against existing technology the existing technology is absolutely awesome but actually the tote is better let's see that and let's not have a rules assisted result I think look, well, I've spoken to Toyota about it specifically, and they they've told me that they genuinely feel that there's only so far you can go with marketing when you dominate as the way they have done. Um, it just doesn't have the value it it did. You know, after you've won Le Mans twice and after you've won almost every single race, um, there's only so far you can take that. And also, they're going to want to head into the hypercar rule set, having been pushed and challenged, and you know, in, have the momentum of having raced pace people rather than race themselves. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you know, we've already seen, well, what purports to be um, the test mule for the hypercar, although I think you and I have both had conversations that indicate that probably what we've seen is not what we're going to expect to see when we get round to um, hypercar racing next year. What we've seen is something that visually might look a little bit like it, but actually it's a basic systems mule rather than the test car for the hypercar, which, if it is uh, running, is certainly not the one that has been shown uh, in video so far. Mm, they're going to enjoy developing that one, aren't they? Aren't they After just? After a while, <laughs> after so many years now of, of wheeling out the same car. Absolutely. We're going to go now to Luke uh, Filippone on Facebook. It says, hey gents, in regards to LMP2, what makes the Oracle 07 the dominant force it's become? Did Oracle nail something the other manufacturers missed? Love to hear thoughts on this. Thanks as always. Uh, th- yeah, thanks for that. Look, it's the, the answer is they did come into this with an advantage. They they basically had the only platform in the Oracle 05 that was able to be upgraded to the 07. They also had, remember, um, years of error research to build on from the Rebellion uh, LMP1 program again on the same platform so they came in punching and there's little doubt in my mind that that gave them a significant working advantage particularly when you're dealing with a platform that is cost capped so did Orica come in with a head start yes they did has that head start been retained it, it has to a greater or lesser degree we, oddly enough uh, you know we were just w- walked out for lunch a little while ago Stephen and you know in certain circumstances both the Delara and the Ligier, perfectly capable of 
you know, fantastic results. The Ligier, um, you know, I'm sure we've got this question on the back of the United Order Sports uh, announcement. Uh, they are switching their WC campaign to Orica, and you know they will have access to three chassis uh, with the two XJDC Miller cars now on their strength, as well as a brand new car. That you know we've seen good results from the Ligier, particularly United Autosports hands, winning races against strong opposition in the Ilamas, and we've seen as well a win for the Delara chassis. It came uh, in the hands of SMP Racing a couple of seasons ago now, but in what was you know, to all intents and purposes, a much more pro rather than pro am lineup. We've seen two with that Delara. You made that point that Gila van der Garda, uh, whenever he gets behind the wheel of that car, uh, the racing team Netherlands car, made it fly. Mm, yeah, uh, part of the advantage I think Horica has is genuinely its customer base. You know, I think few will argue that it's a, a rather more sophisticated car and perhaps the best car out of the selection, but they've got numbers. And they've got most of the really, really professional P2 teams. So that in itself is going to give them wins on occasion, isn't it? it? It's certainly, you know, when you look at it, you have to look at the driver lineups. And I think privately there's been some frustration amongst uh, some involved with the Delara programmes that in some instances the am end of the Pro Am um, driving lineups for some of those Delaras has been perhaps uh, more am than pro. Uh, which, for those who you know, understand the vagaries of the driver ranking system, you'd understand that. But, you know, is there anything basically wrong with the Delara platform? No, I don't think there is. Um, it's probably a more edgy balance in terms of the setup than for the Orica, which does appear, to all intents and purposes, to be the the car that's got the bigger operating window, which means, by the way, that a professional driver can afford to give more to their AM compatriots in that car uh, in terms of the balance the setup of the car coming into a race situation it's going to be an interesting one to see uh, do i share people's concerns about the move towards a more uh, even more orica dominated uh, picture yeah i do i absolutely do um and it's a matter now of whether or not we're going to see a response from the rule makers uh, you know as many have pointed out there is provision in the rules to introduce some aspect of balance and performance the problem here is what what is you, you you do to balance something that essentially principally is caused by sometimes the driver mix in those cars um in certain circumstances the Ligier and for that matter the the Delara has shown itself able to, to mix with even the quickest of the Oricas over short to medium parts of a stint. Um, I'm not quite sure how you balance that without shoving the pendulum entirely over into the opposite direction. Mm. Part of the problem is the fact that some of the, the customer teams here, I think, are a bit disappointed in the reaction that Delara Alicia had to the Joker packages. I don't think that the upgrades that they came out with were what people thought they were going to be, and especially with the Delara, because the front end, the error... error they, made, they made a mess of it. They yeah. de- Delara, Delara made a mistake in terms of the change they made, and there was a further minor change required to fix a bit of that. Let's wait and see. Um, the, the reality is, make no mistake, the the numbers that are involved in LMP2 now in ACO rules racing are such that this has become a very important part of the picture. And I've no doubt whatsoever that wherever it was on the to-do list to think about now and into the future with LMP2, that move from United Autosports will have pushed it further up the agenda. Mm. Joshua Johnson on Facebook asks, 
that's a question that's in the same topic. So given given United and high class racing's move to Orica, is it a failing of the ACO by not doing enough to the LMP two class to level it out or not to allow it to be a one chassis class? Do you think they'll ever consider making it a one one make class going forward? I sincerely hope they don't. I think that would be a massive mistake. Uh, you know, the when you talk to the professional um, racing teams that operate in LMP two, you know, we talked as well about the potential for each class to be a single tyre manufacturer and that is something that's utterly rejected by the most active LMP2 teams out there saying look the last thing you want to do is to give your gentlemen customers fewer choices they want to feel part of that decision making process they are paying a phenomenal amount of money to go racing Um, and what they want is to feel as if they've got the opportunity to make some choices there's no choice in terms of the engine and and by the way that's not a slight on the fantastic uh, gibson v8 but what you do have choice in is chassis and you have choice in tires and uh, firmly i think everybody in that paddock believes that that should remain Um, it is a matter here of what is it you do do you level that playing field through regulation do you level that playing field by resetting the clock in terms of the next phase of uh, LMP2 chassis licenses, or do you level that uh, playing field um, just by natural osmosis and and wait and see what actually happens uh, with people making their decisions? I'm not particularly a fan of uh, making a decision by regulation, but you know there will come a point where if you want to avoid it being a one mate class, and it's you know ELMS still just about okay, uh, certainly for this year, but elsewhere clearly. Uh, it's moving towards an Orica-dominated uh, situation, that if that's what the ACO wants to avoid, then they've got a series of choices that they have the opportunity to make. Damien Peachman, another question about P2. He says, when are the next-gen LMP2 cars due to race, and will the next-gen LMP2 cars be restricted to just four manufacturers? Uh, the answer is uh, there's a decision to be made. I think that from memory, it was a four-year license i'll double check that but i think it was a four-year license and that's um to 20 uh, 2021 um the will it be restricted to four manufacturers i don't know is the honest answer um you know we don't yet know what the answer to the question is about um what the score is going to be about validity of chassis for dpi uh, 2.0 uh, i think there may well be other players that will want to be considered in terms of licenses for uh, LMP2. I would presume at this point that the four existing manufacturers will want to remain on that list. Uh, whether or not it's because of their customer base in LMP2 or whether or not it's because of their customer base in DPI. And I would assume that at the very least um, that Duquesne, who now own the rights to the Norma, and Ginetta, with their LMP1 programme and therefore uh, having invested very heavily in that chassis technology, would want to consider whether or not there's a business case to uh, to push down that road. Uh, and the final question, I think, on P2 now is from Sad Boys Two Men on WC Reddit. Sad Boys to Men, I think. Not Sad, sad boys. boys Two Men. No, yeah. Okay. Sad it's, boys it's, to pun- men. Punctuation matters. Okay. Fair enough. Um, he says. Uh, it's an editing point there for yes. you, look, boys and girls. During <laughs> during the one, the commentators were talking about the funding disparity between the P2 teams and how teams like Senior Tech Alpine and G-Drive have so much in terms of financial and human resources that their success is virtually guaranteed over the smaller teams. So my questions are, do you think that this, um, that this funding disparity is an issue that needs to be addressed since it is a spec class? 
Does the ACO have any particular problem with it? Have you heard smaller teams make complaints about this situation? Love the show, Root and Fisher, Brown and Marshall. Um, the answer is, do I think it's a problem? No. I think it's something for the smaller teams to aspire to. Look at a team like Inter Europol, who are making great strides up and through the, uh, the ladder system uh, to improve their preparation to expand their racing operations to expand their fleets and I don't think they feel as if they want or for that matter need a leg up um, do I think that something should be done about it absolutely 100% no I don't I think what the market will support the market should get you cannot make an argument that um, it's okay to restrict the marketplace to four chassis manufacturers and then say you really need to cost cap uh, spending on this one the reality is People who've got the money in the budget will find ways to spend that if they think it's going to lead to better things. And that means better equipment in the pits. It means better uh, telemetry. It means better staff, for that matter. People who can actually get the car into the garage, through the garage and out of the garage quicker. People who can get through pit stops quicker. It's it's all of that. It's better uh, strategy. It's, it's basically, it's those tiny things we've said time and time again on the weekend sports cars matter to us about making sure that this stays what it's always been which is a proper team game team sports the purest team sport in motorsport to my mind and you know that's what i think sometimes we stand to lose if you allow the thought pattern to develop that uh, that the rule makers the regulators um should have carte blanche to decide on those kinds of matters don't think they should excellence should win races excellence on track excellence off track excellence in preparation excellence in the pit lane excellence on the pit wall that's what should win an endurance race and you know i'd argue long and hard against anything that stands in its way next up we've got jordan hopwood on facebook he says it's the one-off pro af course of ferrari at spa just af course are wanting to run this car since they're in the wc off season or is it being supported by ferrari themselves is it a sign that Ferrari are taking sports car racing more seriously? Also, Ferrari have unveiled the F8. Is there any word on if slash when the car will place the 488 GTE and GT3? Um, I'm thinking, are you talking here about Spa 24 hours? I believe so. It doesn't say that, but I believe that's what you're I just want to be sure because there was, a, of course, another instance where there was one of the GTE Pro cars that was part of the Spa test uh, for the WC runners, so I'll answer both. The answer f- about the um, the actually it wasn't Spa, was it? it was Paul Ricard. So it definitely is a Spa Twenty Four Hours. Look, the reality is they've got a they've got a customer. They've got a customer that wants to win the biggest races, uh, and the Spa Twenty Four Hours is one of, if not the biggest, GT only race on the planet. And why wouldn't you, as Ferrari, one of the most successful commercially manufacturers in GT Three, want to give yourself the best crack at that? Do I think that would be a replacement for GTE Pro? I'd like to think not, is the honest answer. Um, you know, you're talking here, of course, about the, the same team and the same factory um, that has just won the Le Mans 24 hours, and they're going to be in a brilliant position to take away. Let's let's say for the sake of arguing that that Ferrari does win the Spa 24 hours, and it's going to have a fair crack at it. Mm. They're going to be in a better position than you am, that you am, you are, I am, or anybody else is, to sit back and literally quantify the good that that has done their commercial effort 
their media effort, they will have all the results at their fingertips to say, let's see what we got from winning a class, but not overall at the Le Mans 24 Hours in GT Pro, and let's see what we got in terms of winning, winning overall at the Spa 24 Hours in GT3. They will be able to do that better than you or I can, Steve, or anybody else reasonably can. Um, and I don't think that's a choice they're going to make. But if it were a choice, they'll have everything at their fingertips to assist them in doing so. Um, remember, the GT3 marketplace is a pure customer marketplace for the vast majority of teams, including very many of the teams in pro. Those cars will not be owned by the factory. They will likely be owned either by professional uh, racing teams or by wealthy individuals. This is very much a matter of selling principally race cars but beyond that the highest level of performance road cars for those big makes and you know the proof of the pudding will be in the sales records um you know a year two years down the line mm. it's a bucket list item isn't it for ferrari to win the spa 24 hours oh yeah with, with gt3 car which is it's a- been a while isn't it am i right the last time ferrari won it was back in 2004 with lillian brinner that sounds about right. Um, you know, and okay, we've had Ferrari engines win since with it in the back of the Maserati, mm. uh, Maseratis, the Vitaphone cars. But the reality is, yeah, you know, in the modern era with GT3 exploding worldwide uh, in terms of numbers as well as the, the highest level of that racing, why wouldn't they want to be in amongst it? And if they've got a customer and they do that is prepared to, uh, to fund that effort, then why would you not, as a manufacturer, uh, be in support of actually topping that up with your talent. And the F8? Any uh, no, no news. That? No news on that. I mean, the, we've got another cycle of um, uh, GTE rules due reasonably soon. Uh, but you know, there's a lot. I know we've got some questions a little later on about things like GT convergence. Maybe they know. Well, maybe, of course, they know rather more than we do about the way that um, rules cycles are actually uh, moving forward. We don't know what their plans are. I'm not expecting that we're going to be seeing any time immediately soon um, the prospects of a uh, programme being announced for Hypercar, for Ferrari, but I've been surprised before. Adam Bowman on Facebook is asking a BOP question, so I'm going to stay out of this one. <laughs> I'm still confused over the Friday BOP at Le Mans why Corvette and Aston got hammered and the qualifying times were not that far apart from each other. I'm just not going down the road of saying it was hammered. I still, you know, I think there was something about the operating window for that Aston Martin that um, clearly put it out of its comfort zone. With what was not a hammering, um, you know, I'm, I'm terribly sorry, but I'm not at home to. Yeah, media operations implying and state I'm not implying stating that putting 15 kilos on a car is an absolute disaster it isn't you know that should be bear in mind we are dealing here with a balanced performance formula these are known knowns you know how can you possibly have a platform that putting 15 kilos on a car means that you are rendered uncompetitive that that strikes me as being a nonsense you know, it certainly isn't the case in very many other racing formulas. Something was very odd about the way that happened for Aston Martin. I think we can put that one actually to one side. Am I particularly a fan of things happening in the middle of a race meeting? No, I'm not. But I'm also realistic enough to think like this. Number one, they don't do it for no reason. Number two is they have access to a hell of a lot more data than we do. A hell of a lot more data than we do. Number three, even if you wanted to add politics into this, 
the politics you would have thought in response to a manufacturer that just announced a major support of the top class of racing in the ACO, the politics would have been in their favour. So whatever happened, there has to have been an evidence-based reason behind it. As to why it had the net effect that it did, particularly on the Aston Martins, I have to say I feel the need to sit down quietly and have somebody Aston Martin explain that to me because I simply am not seeing it from the raw data. Correct me if I'm wrong, Graham, but during the season we did see the Aston on more than one occasion perform extremely well in qualifying and then the race just gradually fade away. It was very very strong in the earlier part of some long stints, wasn't it? And then fell back, fell back. Whether or not it's not looking after the tyres properly, whatever it is, awesome car, but still quite a new car. And maybe there's still some development to come. Hubcap Motors on WC Reddit says, How different are the regulations between GTE cars and hypercar car cars? Is it possible to have a GTE car that's convertible to hypercar or vice versa? I guess the answer is yes. If you're talking here about the potential for a road-going hypercar... Uh, to be within a set of regulations, then technically speaking, yes. You you could have something that is based around a platform to some degree or other um, from a GTE car that potentially could get there if the cockpit uh, dimensions are correct, if the underfloor aero is correct. Anything is is possible. Um, Whether or not it's probable or likely, I think we'll see emerge. Uh, uh, What's interesting is it's gone quiet now. It's gone quiet now uh, post Le Mans because we've got two teams working like hell to actually get their um, next season, not the coming season, but the next season's hypercars ready to roll. We saw, of course, at the British Grand Prix uh, last weekend, the first what they've called dynamic debut. In other words, car running dynamic debut. That's a hateful phrase. Um, very automotive, yeah. isn't it? And it is a spectacular-looking thing, the, the Aston Martin Valkyrie. Clearly not running at full tilt yet, and there's clearly some way to go yet before the, that car is ready for owners' uh, hands and, indeed, beyond that, for the development that we know is going to have to go into making that a raceable platform. But um, I think the answer is there's all sorts of things that are potentially up in the air. We saw GT Pro Plus, GT Pro Plus kind of banded around, didn't we? Yeah, and, I, it, and it didn't really go anywhere. Did I, it? I, yeah, I, you know, for the very first that that was mentioned first time a long time ago, and was effectively laughed out at that stage. It then re-emerged as a kind of banner wielded by, I believe, the FIA to try to attract the attention. Oddly enough, as we said a little earlier, of of, uh, of um, Ferrari, and that didn't work either. I just don't see it. I don't. Uh, I think there's a difference here between hypercar, where there is a risk that you'll rob Peter to pay Paul. In other words, take away from GTE to fill the hypercar. We've happily had Aston Martin saying that won't happen in their instance. But in case of GTE Pro Plus, it's almost certain, isn't it? So what what does that add, other than the potential for having a top class prototype program, or in this case GTE Plus program? almost certainly at the expense of a GT Pro uh, programme. That, to my mind, is a far less desirable solution. And yeah, much as it makes good headlines, it's not, frankly, a headline I ever gave very much house room to. We're going to move on to IMSA now, Graham. Lovely. We love the Americans, us. We do love the Americans. They're great. You're great guys out there. We love you. We love you to pieces. Right Turn Lover kicks us off with a question on Twitter. He says, would a race where IMSA LMP2 is the headlining class attract more full-season injuries? A couple, of, a couple of years ago, PC and GTD ran at Lime Rock Park. Yeah, and it was a bit of a letdown, actually, the PC GTD thing. I think the answer is it's got potential, but I think the reality is you're going to need a rather bigger 
um, you know, uh, your rather bigger kind of uh, group of LMP2 cars promised well, to make that even a possibility? Well, the question that's next up is from Nate Detweiler, and this is kind of linked into it. He says, after reading your article in United Auto Sports and their purchase of the JDC Miloracos, I'm wondering how many P2 cars are in the States and not being run. Well, there's not very many. Well, not very many at all. So we know, so okay, let's work this one through. We know P.R. Matteson have ordered a new Orica. We know that's been slightly delayed to accommodate the new Orica that will form the race car for the WEC for United Auto Sports. Uh, to, to fill in the gaps, anybody that didn't read uh, Delhi Sports Cars story, and if not, how dare you? Uh, but uh, just in case you haven't, in addition to that, in fact, prior to that, um, the first of the two JDC Miller cars was purchased by United Autosports because they couldn't get hold of a new car quick, quickly enough. That led to a conversation and the entire LMP2 project from JDC Miller being purchased by United Autosports. One car, I believe, may already be with the team. Another car being C-freighted together with the Spurs package. Um once Orica realised who the customer was, they uh, shifted around their production schedule so that effectively United Autosports jumped forward in the queue because they need the car before PR Mat- PR1 Matterson with their second car they'd already made clear that they've actually got. So what have we got available in the United States now or predictably? Well, we've obviously got the two cars that are currently racing. There is, I believe, the one remaining Multimatic, Riley Multimatic Mark 30 is now left BAR, is in private hands, and I'm not expecting that car to race in contemporary racing again. I suspect that might show up somewhere, HSR maybe. Um, we've got the PR1 car on the way. There is the Ligier that the team had previously, which I believe is still in the United States, and I'm thinking that's it. Mm. I'm thinking that's it. The other thing to bear in mind, by the way, is not always that easy. Let's, let's say for the sake of arguing that a team you know, with a LMP2 chassis decided let's go racing next weekend or in two weeks' time. The other thing that's got to be built into this is the support by Gibson for those engines. There are only 50 um, GK428 engines in existence. You buy that time by the mile you know, in packages of, of mileage for those cars. And that needs to be fed in in terms of the event support, in terms of the logistics that mean the engines are where they need to be, both to run the cars and to get back to be rebuilt. Um, yeah, I don't want to put this prospect down, but the reality is there is not a large um, feeding pool of uh, LMP2 opportunities for teams actively in the United States right now. That's why I wrote the story that I did for Racer.com that says the removal of the two JDC Miller cars... Oh, sorry, you've got the core car as well, I believe. They've still got that car. I believe so. Um, but uh, that's why the removal of them from the United States, effectively second-hand marketplace, potentially has an impact. Why? Well, let's say you were a team or an individual that decided, I'm really enjoying my GT or LMP3 racing... I'd really like it going prototypes. What's the best, easiest way to take the step up the ladder? Well, the best and easiest step up the ladder in the United States and uh, IMSA racing at the moment is LMP2. It's about, broadly, half the cost of a DPI programme. Something like two to three million for a full season, as opposed to somewhere between four and a half and six million, is my understanding of the broad figures for that. Um, Clearly less than that if you're doing race by race. Uh, But the reality is that some of the available uh, commercial opportunities 
to go down the second-hand route, which of course makes it cheaper still, um, have been removed by United Autosports uh, soaking up those two cars. I'm not saying it's the death knell. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is it makes it more difficult for a team or an individual to make an immediate decision, let's go racing within the foreseeable future without going to the European second-hand market or buying a new car. Do you think it was a mistake at this point then for them to split the classes with bearing in mind all this? Or do you think it's not a problem if we go forward with IMSA with a couple of P2s or no P2s at all? I think it's a, a problem if they go forward with a tiny class. I've never been a fan of uh, sustaining a tiny class over any period of time, and certainly not where you know it's a pro-am uh, formula, which it most certainly is. Uh, it, it saddens me. I understand completely why they made the decision. It saddens me that the level of competition we had last season that did see one or two of the LMP2 teams at certain tracks taking it to the DPIs. I do think that's a shame. I certainly would have preferred that um, we went to a split rather than seeing any kind of false split within the class that you are allegedly in the, the running but actually aren't. That, that I don't think, would have been the correct way to actually do it. There were clear issues for the P2s at some tracks where the more sophisticated suspension damping setups of the DPIs could come into play. It's a real tricky one. Again, you come down to this. Uh, there was clear disappointment from some of the players involved that some of those choices were removed from them. But it's a numbers game. Ultimately, IMSA have gone where they believe is in the best interests for their uh, business model. That's down the DPI route. It's down the exclusively DPI for the overall wins route. You know, and on the basis of what we have seen this year, you would have to say that that looked like the correct move. The proof of the pudding, as far as I'm concerned, is never in a single season. It's over two, three, four seasons. We'll see. Um, I hope P2 can actually find a way back into the United States with a more healthy uh, group of cars because they are cars that race really, really well. Um, but I think it's a long, hard road for that class. Mm. Stephen Olive on Facebook says, now that Yost have gotten the monkey off Mazda's back, popped the cherry and got them in the W column, then proven it wasn't a fluke the next week, is the sky truly the limit for that programme? Well, why shouldn't it be? I mean, you know, we've I don't know, Marshall has said a lot. We've said the difference between look, it's it's Mazda Team Yoast and everybody involved in that from uh, you know AR with the engines, from Multimatic, from everybody involved in that program deserves massive uh, you know plaudits and respect for what what's now been achieved. There's no reason why they shouldn't be title contenders. The biggest issue they've got, we've said this, and I know Marshall in particular said this uh, over many airings on Twisk, is They've got one inbuilt disadvantage, and that is that dual-like turbocharged engine is naturally more stressed when you get into the longer races. The reality is it did very, very well indeed over six hours. Um, it, it has traditionally had a bit more of a struggle over the longer distance races. If they can get that cracked, then I think Roger Penske and the guys at Cadillac will be looking over their shoulders and thinking, oh, hell. Now we've got real competition because make no mistake, that is one awesome little race car. Mm. Next up, we've got a question from Ryan Terpstra on Facebook. Do you, do you want to have a crack at reading this one? Uh, is it one of it's Ryan's? A, it's, it's a it's a proper question. It's proper war and peace stuff again from Ryan. Right, I'm gonna I'm gonna um, I'm gonna paraphrase this. Uh, the risk of an Kilby soapbox, oh, please no. Uh, blah blah blah. IMSA BOP. Blah blah blah. Uh, openly admitting Hughes Corvette fan, blah, blah. Generally roots against Porsche, doesn't care much about the rest, blah. Corvette fastest. Uh, Glenn, BMW split the Porsches, blah, blah, blah. 
BRP question is, does Ford need a bit of a break? Uh, has the exact same question about Cadillac and DPI for basically the same reasons. Um, okay. Um, I'm going to reiterate what I've said before about this one. If you so want... Moment, yeah, it was a slight soapbox moment, which is... Um, and brought to you, by the way, by, of course, Christoph Boucher's Hammer Emporium, mm. um, our sponsor for this soapbox moment, which we forgot to mention. They were really annoyed. In fact, they, they were very annoyed. Christoph came around with the hammer to complain about that. Yeah, I got and multiple I bl- messages. I'm blaming this. you for that. Yeah. I've still got the bruises. Um, but he's only little, so I gave him a slap. Uh, so the answer here, I think, is reiterated from last week and for that matter the week before is the, cl- the, the key to balance of performance being available to make a difference is that you don't hit anything and don't go off track when you've got halfway decent balance of performance and certainly don't do that when you've not. And in both the instances you, uh, you cite, uh, in fact all three instances you cite, Corvette, Ford and Cadillac, I can immediately record instances where, for whatever reason, some um, you know unforced, some rather forced, uh, each of those three parties has spent time off track after an on-track incident. Balanced performance cannot uh, offset the effects of misfortune, um, over-exuberance, and at times just pure ass-hattery. There's not a lot that can actually happen with that. Do I think that um, insert name of favourite uh, make, model of insert DPI or GTLM requires a massive performance break? No, I don't. Uh, I would say this right here. I think um, whilst, as with every other uh, racing operation on the planet, IMSA has taken more than its fair share of criticism about BOP in the past, they've got it pretty well pinned uh, right now. Do I think at the moment it looks like Mazda has got something of a performance advantage in certain circumstances? Yes, it does. Is that a result of the wick being turned up through BOP uh, over (laughs) many, many months gradually to try to get that team to the point where when reliability comes to them and luck comes to them, the performance is there to allow them to at least have a chance of cashing in? Yes, it does. It is swings and roundabouts, oranges and lemons, cats and dogs, cricket and baseball. The reality here is that balance of performance is not, in the way that modern racing um, emerges, a simple uh, mathematical engineering-led process, politics and financial realities come into it too. So let's wait and see what emerges in the coming weeks for you know both those classes. Do I think there'll be people from Cadillac banging their head, their hand, their fists on tables? Do I think there'll be the same uh, within the GTLM thing? Of course, because you know what? That's the way these things are done. You've got the polite way, the the background. Here's our data. Uh, let us point you in the direction of things that we think you should be looking at. And by the way, la la la. Don't look at page three. Um, you always where it shows we got a clear advantage. And then the post race post television embarrassment of products rather more how can i put this shouty exchanges that have no doubt take place as well um the the reality there is it comes out in the wash at the moment what we've got is a championship that's bubbling along pretty nicely uh, there will be those that disagree there will be those that say it's not fair get on and race another question from ryan and this question is specifically about ctmp as a circuit he says 
It's a two-part question. One, can you think of a more dangerous corner on the IMSA or WC calendars than turn two at most sport? Um, and the second part of it is, do you think that the risk for prototypes racing there is just too high? He said he spoke to MP, gave a concrete answer, that his opinion is that CTMP is not too much for DPI. I don't think it is too much for DPI. I think there is a reality. You know, I think in the in, in just about every track, uh, look, a track is a, is a living thing. Uh you know, you'll get bumps and clumps, and you know it's not a, it's not a, it's not for no reason that the teams and the drivers walk a circuit before going and doing battle on it. They're there to, yes, talk to drivers that may not have been before, but they're there to look as well as to where things might have changed in the twelve months since they went before. Where have they seen resurfacing? Where have you seen repairs? What changes have been made? You know, what trackside, um, you know, visual. Uh, references are there for them there's a whole range of things i mean you've walked around a track with drivers before it's not just a stroll it's a working trip around the track to see what they can pick up and you know most remarkable things do come up in that uh, in that process you know, it's something at some point you know that actually you i and or marshall should do with a top-notch group of drivers going around a track that we've not been for a little while mm, is just to find out exactly what comes up in that process it is fascinating you know, the reality was something went horribly badly wrong clearly for the Junkos uh, Cadillac the reality was it didn't go wrong for anybody else at that same point so whatever happened whether or not that was an error a failure the reality was that mercifully we're talking only about a broken car and we're talking about a driver that will make an absolutely full recovery um, I think there are an awful lot more places that I've been racing fairly uh, fairly recently where there's significantly more risk in significantly more corners than that one at CTMP. But you cannot legislate for a point in a high-risk circuit where either a driver makes a big mistake or something breaks on that car. I mean, you know, I'm thinking here uh, circuits, not just like the Nordschleife, which is just plain bonkers, but, for instance, Bathurst, we saw what happened with Tim Pappas when something went wrong there. And that was a car, what's a GT3 car? That was a car of significantly less performance than a DPI. It didn't have significantly uh, less of uh, an effect on Tim, who was pretty badly injured in that, uh, in that shunt. You know, the reality is that you can only do so much to um, protect the occupants of those cars you know, it's. I've said, I'm sure you've said, MP said, and other colleagues have said before, on every ticket that I've ever received from a motorsport event, the same phrase is on the back. Motorsport is dangerous. If you don't want it to be dangerous, then we're talking about an entirely different sport. Going back to your point about track walks, it is astonishing. If you go on a track walk with a team or like a tyre manufacturer, for instance, that is incredibly committed and does it professionally the level of detail that they pay attention oh, yeah. to is unlike anything you've seen i've been i won't name names i've been with teams who will measure to the centimeter the height of curbs each year and they will have a database of the picture of every curb at every corner of every circuit they go to because so, that they go- compare them every year but that goes into the that goes into the briefing for the drivers saying you cannot clip the curb here and that's mm. for instance where you see the inside of the curb cutting the inside of the tire that's what they're looking for there what does that curb edge look like is it somewhere where you've got to, you know if you if you cut that curb are you placing risk on the car that's what they're looking for there same with the sausage curbs of course we've seen mm. that in dramatic fashion in previous years where those awful orange 
Toblerones that you know have been put at a number of tracks in the past have literally ripped corners off cars. It's not what it should be mm. about. Mm, tire manufacturers as well, they'll take multiple pictures of the track surfaces all over the place, have year on year, see the difference when they relay a circuit, how different the, you know, even the width of like the stones, of all these technicalities, they basically probe the circuit. It's it's a really fascinating, it's one of those things you don't realise goes on yep. until you do You just think they're going up and looking around just to see breaking points. It's so much more than that. So much more than that. That's why it takes them almost as long as it does for you to run a, run a lap, mate. Right, okay. <laughs> it's not a race, okay? <laughs> Sean um, Duhamel on Facebook says, with GM set to unveil the new mid-engined Corvette, is there any news of a race version of that for 2020 and beyond? And a follow-up question is whether or not there is any Ford-related news relative to its DPI entry. Okay, Corvette, uh, as we record this on, what day is it, Wednesday? Uh, we are less than 36 hours away from the revelation of the Corvette C8. Is there going to be a race version of it? Oh, yes, there is. Of course there is. Do we know details yet? No, we don't. There's just about every, uh, you know, motoring magazine and blog on the planet has already revealed what they think they know about this. Um, it's a very significant car for General Motors. It's a very significant car for Corvette Racing. And we will have details, I am certain, within the next couple of days. Uh as far as the detail on that, and for that matter, on the uh, potential for a Ford DPI, I urge you to keep an eye on what Marshall Pruitt's output is going to be on racer.com. You know what? With the challenges that Marshall's got right now, I wouldn't be remotely surprised if he wasn't first to the punch, but I'd be remarkably surprised if he wasn't best. Um, as far as the Ford DPI is concerned, I think we're now talking about the when and what and with whom rather than if. Uh, again, have a look back at MP's output over the last couple of months for his thoughts on that one. Are Ford coming? I believe they are. The key question now is when. Mm. To, to Listo on USCR Reddit. So some, so some new names this week. Great to hear. Well, mm. Welcome to Listo. With all the participants in GTD already, what has prevented a Nissan GTR from joining the teams in GTD? A team that wants to do it and a manufacturer that wants to spend the money, I think is what it comes down to. It's not to. a cheap hobby to get a car in the IMSA GTD. It's group. not a, a cheap hobby to do anything in IMSA at all. Um, and, you know, it, there are no uh, cheap ways in. Uh, the reality is that you know, that's what clearly held McLaren back until the Compass Racing Programme and McLaren finally decided, yes, we will pay up as a full manufacturer uh, entry for uh, IMSA but the reality is there's there's not a team that's emerged and certainly not Nissan emerging prepared to pay that fee and I don't see that changing uh, Nissan's take on uh, the world of motorsport has changed immeasurably in the last uh, six to eight months and that has had a dramatic effect on the potential for those cars to race anywhere it's changed so much in the last few years hasn't it yeah I mean you know, the, you know when you get to the stage where you see Bob Neville um, moving across from Nissan at RGM Motorsports. Uh, if, those not familiar with Bob Neville and his uh, excellent wife, uh, Liz, uh, RGM Motorsport for decades involved with Nissan through um, Super Touring uh, through to GT3 were, were there on site with all of the big successes that the GTRs had outside Japan and some of the ones in Japan um, and simply no support whatsoever available for that continuing those cars have now been sold. Those cars uh, read uh, just a couple of days ago. The second, the cars that Bob had, um, you know, uh, within the team, been sold on for two car efforts in GT Cup, which is second, third string GT racing in the UK. 
uh, for two cars that were part of an effort that won the Blompen Endurance Championship mm. but just a couple of three years ago um, he's moved on now of course with Jensen Button to set up a uh, team featuring Hondas it saddens me I think it's a missed opportunity for Nissan and I have to tell you I do wonder how much longer they've got in GT3 racing mm. yeah well at least Bob Neville seems to be a very happy man with the Honda package oh he does he's, he's uh Chanting from the hills, how good that car is! Uh, it's you know, he's an excellent individual. It's got a great, great team, and well done by the way to Jensen and to Chris Buncombe for putting in the effort that's made that all happen. It looks great that team. General, we're on to the general questions. General, as uh, Marjorie say, General. General. Good grief! We're going to start with Baxter on Twitter. He says, two weeks ago we learned that TVR stands for Trevor. We also know that Colour CLM stands for Colin Lamont, and of course the roller mark. XXX is the name for the club that Graham used to strip at. Absolutely. What's your favourite absurd namesake for a sports car? <sighs> that's a cracking question, isn't it? I mean, TVR is Trevor. I mean, let's, let's get that one I didn't right. Know that. That's absolutely right. TVR is short for Trevor, the, the man that uh, initially, Trevor Wilkinson, the man who established that make. I'm going to. It's interesting because it came up as a as a talking point, didn't it, like a year ago about yeah. acronyms being used for motorsport chassis names and team names and whether it was a good thing or not. Well, you know, to the to the point where you know it's uh, very many people get to the stage where you forget what's actually an acronym. Fiat is an acronym. BMW is obviously an acronym. You know, it's Oracle one. Oracle is an acronym. Yeah. You know, which is why it should be capitalised. Yeah. Um, so it's. It's an interesting one. Let me think about that one and remind me of that. Put a big mark against that and I'll come back to that a little later in the show. It, yeah. yeah. RSR does, does it feel like we're doing this wig in this one? <laughs> we would never do that. No. Again. We are highly professional. No. How dare you. RSR Screams, fantastic username, on Twitter says, we often see a reduction in SB9 entries in VLN after the N24. What do you think could be done to keep these numbers up? And do you think speeding the SB9 cars back up could help? Um... The reality is those teams are prepping for the N24, so short of actually making it an awful lot cheaper, I don't think there's a lot you could do. Uh, the problem, of course, is that those teams, those drivers, have got so many opportunities to race those cars in other places. So um, very often you'll hear, uh, you know, we'll do three VLN races plus the number Green 24, maybe the qualifying race, blah, blah, blah. Uh, beyond that, I do think it's, you know, the VLN has got its charm and the late season races have got their charm as well you know it's not like 149 cars the past weekend was a bad entry it wasn't no and I think it's the, the VLN is a bit like the 24H series and what makes that great is that people can dip in and out yeah, they, they don't can. have to do a full season and let's be honest most people aren't fighting for a championship um, when they go for VLN especially in SP9 they don't see it as a championship they desperately need to win and I think that's good because you always get a couple of races where maybe some of the less experienced people around the North Life can have a crack at a VLN race and not have 30 GT3 cars flying I, th- I think there's, there's, there's this thing to say as well I mean, I've always kind of quietly divided uh, endurance motorsport into two groups of races and championships that can intermingle at times and that are they are the championships that are principally there as entertainment and there are those that are principally there for participation and I think VLN and uh, 24H series are amongst those championships that in various ways cross over between those two groups and by the way you know a golf clap to you know our friends and colleagues at Radio Show Limited for the fact they've played a great 
uh, role in making sure that more of that intermingling happens. And that's pretty clearly why they've been asked to actually involve themselves with those two championships, because there are clearly commercial reasons why that's a good thing. But let's not get away from the fact that there will be some of those events that are just more attractive to people who just want to go racing on the Nordschleife. It is still, you know, the most awesome track on the planet. It's as simple as that. And these are races that have been happening. I think I think I'm right that this past weekend it was the fiftieth running of the race that we've just seen. It's this extraordinary championship, which is actually each race is run by an individual uh, motor club in Germany. Uh, they have their own race uh, each year, and they organise that race, and that comes together under one championship. So, you know, in UK terms, it would be like the AA having a race, and the RAC having a race, Green Flag having a race, and Joe's Garage down the road having a race. Whatever it is, you would have those uh, coming together and forming themselves into a championship. So the the reality here is I don't think it's a problem. Of course we'd like to see more awesome cars at the front, but, you know, it's supply and demand, isn't it? And it mustn't be forgotten how much of a battering those cars take in the Nürburgring 24 hours. You, it takes an, a phenomenal amount of time and work to rebuild those in time for racing. You watch those cars and those drivers and those teams finishing something like the Nürburgring 24 hours, and I, I watch some of the guys walking out into the paddock after any 24-hour race, let alone the Nürburgring 24-hour race, and it sometimes brings to mind the battered remains of an army of, on a medieval battlefield. And, you know, that's what it sort of feels like. They look completely done. I've seen swords in the paddock as well. Swords, yeah. yeah. Uh, and shields. Yeah. yeah. It's all sorts of stuff in the back of those garages <laughs> at the races. But, but imagine the punishing, punishment those cars take. And... It's a, an amazing thing that just a few weeks later they turn up for another go at this. Um, they're mad. They're all mad. Shane Martin on Facebook says, Hello, gentlemen. After listening to last week's episode talking about BOP and EOT, did we talk about those? We don't know. Could the overseeing body adjust the wheel width and tyre width to pull back the amount of grip available for a Toyota or any LMP1 hybrid? I'm not sure about the current Toyota specs, but if you made the front wheels narrower, there'd be less grip and a hybrid to pull out the corner would be much harder to manage. By the way, you got incredibly lucky in the Cricket World Cup, but great match. wasn't lucky, it was... No, skill, skill. Uh, every single move in that uh, that final couple of that super over, we knew exactly what we were doing. I was never in any doubt. No. Archer, absolutely. You know, uh, right. So the answer there is you could, but you'd need to regulate for that, and you need to do that well before the start of the season. Uh, there is no way that any professional race team, and certainly on a factory team, would um, would accept that being done at no notice because all your simulation, all your engineering um, input is done on the basis of not just performance but safety. Uh, with things like grip same with tyres you know to actually produce tyres to a completely different size and wheels for that matter to a completely different size is not the work of a moment had cause they're to... so edgy enough to drive aren't they the people oh they're pretty edgy being they're pretty edgy grippy. they're pretty edgy but I mean I've also spent time fairly recently with team preparing a major uh, new prototype programme and, and listening to ta- some of the things that they're talking about uh, in terms of the items that take the longest to produce. Years ago, I remember talking to uh, a then factory team, um, chatting through how long it takes to actually get a revision built into production for their gearboxes, something like 12 weeks for a major revision to be made. Coming down to the detail, okay, you're talking about weeks to produce some of the minor components, milling... Um, 
the the studs that it takes to actually fix the gearbox and the clutch these are not off the shelf items if you've got a new car and a new installation and something these are things that need to be done to a very high standard and that is not something that you can do overnight mm-hmm. uh, it's something that needs to be uh, built into the project schedule the production schedule and it's fascinating again when you peel back just those level of detail, just exactly how much goes into these things. This is not a matter of, you know, if, if I'm, I'm sitting here at the moment, obviously my highly classified, um, you know, HQ for daily sports cars spinning the back, at the moment. It's the back cave, but with more orange. Uh, yeah, and a bit and a better car, uh, in fairness, <laughs> the, the Ford S-Max, awesome. Uh, but, the, but the reality here is that if I, there's anything I need for my office, I will generally go online. It can be delivered this afternoon or tomorrow. It's not like that when you're building a race car. You know, it's not like that, particularly when you're building a race car that there's very few of, whether that's a prototype or a GTLM, GTE Pro car. You know, sometimes some of those fixed uh, items that you absolutely need to get the car on track, you know, are not going to be something that are going to be immediately available. You have to build it into your program. You can't engineer them on the fly, can you? Yeah, well, you know, how many times have you and I heard, um, insert name of... uh, team principal, team manager, driver, we were stopped by a, quote, 50 cent slash 50p bit. The reality is that it is a matter of whether, if that's not up to the job, then probably should have spent 75p. Mm. Uh, But but actually getting that re-engineered to the point where it is up to the job, you probably only find that out through a failure, at which point it's too late to fix it. You're just putting on another bit that's going to break. Next up, Jerry Robert Sodoff on Facebook. Hey, Jerry. Graham, I respect your opinions. Well, it's got to be one yes, of them. Yes, one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and I have a question regarding vintage sports car racing in which I'm hoping to hear your ideas. I've read where many sports car races feature cars that have optimised performance beyond their imperial capabilities. Do you think this is an appropriate way to run these vehicles? Also, I may be mistaken, but I thought I heard the sound of a Rolls-Royce, Mer- of Rolls-Royce Merlin engines in the background of last week's episode. Did you have Lancasters or Spitfires flying over? If so, that's really cool. Uh, I have had them flying over before, and I'll tell you exactly what you were hearing in, in just a moment. So, um, so the <laughs> might have been the cat. Um, the answer is yes. Uh, there are all sorts of ways in which the vintage, um, uh, or in European terms, the historic race uh, series optimized. Certainly, you're not going to get things like tire technology at the at the um, the level in period because you need solid support at a racetrack and over a, a uh, race uh, calendar for a full season um, so the answer is there's all sorts of things they can, that can be done what you'll generally tend to find is the major thing is they will restrict running time there's one reason and one reason only for that that is to keep the wear on the components down and in particular engine time engine time is what will kill an historic racing formula stone dead um, and that has caused major problems in certain areas when parts have either got to be, uh, you know, built from scratch or sourced. Uh, but engine time is the is the biggest fixed cost for those kind of efforts. As for the engines, you would have heard. Uh, well, oddly enough, no, it wasn't Spitfire or a Lancaster. Uh, but my uh, dear, because we've obviously got the Quinjet, uh, the DSC Quinjet that we only use for short haul, um, mm. puts a bit crap. Um, the the answer is I'm on the flight path for both uh, just out to to the back of the the office here, and uh, down the bottom of the hill, down Lepsum Downs. Um, 
is the flight path into London for helicopters. Uh, and on the other side, uh, we are on direct flight path over the house for where there is a link with the Mother engine for Biggin Hill. So what you likely heard was some form of private aircraft going over. And they can be reasonably low at times uh, through here. You do see some spectacular sights. doesn't bother me in the slightest. But uh, that's but probably... you encourage what, it, wouldn't you? I'd absolutely encourage it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a big aircraft fan. Mm. And, uh, you know, every, on the, on the, on the, down the uh, bottom of the hill, everything from Apaches and Chinooks uh, through to the more general aviation stuff and uh, overhead yeah we've seen so we've had we've had the lancaster over here we've had spitfires over here before now and other warbirds as well and we've had uh, some other bizarre sites but uh, but the reality as far as the other one is concerned is keeping running costs to a minimum is absolutely a priority because that's the way you build a grid up next we've got neil hardy on twitter he says with all the talk about hypercar why is nobody discussing the brabham bt62 is there any news on that program and what about a hypercar based on the new d tomaso it looks stunning at goodwood okay brabham first what they've said they want to consider <sighs> is a uh, short medium term i think it was 2021 2022 gte program but not with the bt62 with the car that follows that in their production plans uh, car as yet without a published identity. BT62 somewhat in excess of GTE uh, capabilities at the moment. That would have to be significantly dumbed down for it to, to be a GTE prospect. Hypercar, I think I'm pretty clear that uh, that's not something that's on their agenda right now. Uh, and the other question was about Di Tommaso. Nothing said at the moment about Di Tommaso. It is a uh, it was P72 I think the car's called. Uh, studying piece of kit. Might want to have a look at Jim Glickenhouse's thoughts on that one. Say, I was going to say, he fired some shots. <laughs> he me. did fire some shots. He thinks that one is, how can I put that? Um, a, bit, a bit rich energy. A bit. It's a it's little bit, nice. how can we put it? Um, it's a tribute. <laughs> it's a tribute to, uh, to some of the work that um, uh, James Glickenhouse and his team have put into one of their previous offerings. So let's wait and see. But I'm not expecting an immediate announcement from Dittomarso about Hypercar. James Beffer on Twitter says, what's the most idiotic, idiotic interaction you've seen between a driver slash team against a race official slash corner marshals? I saw a video of a stock car driver after being wrecked hit a race official once he got out of the car after the race. Uh, there was the famous um, instance in Formula 3 some years ago, which was, from memory, Michael Bentwood being pelted with gravel by an angry Nick Manassian. I remember that one. Yeah, that was... Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of the name of the... Um, Promotech me, uh Formula Three. Uh, that was that was pretty um, <laughs> amazing stuff. Yeah, it's it's handbags, really, isn't it? Handbags, really. Uh, when when you've got the the drivers that have been a bit wound up by something that's actually happened on track. I know we've already told the story about uh, incident between our great friend Christoph Bouchou, Christopher Bucket, and uh, Bob Berridge, which in, uh, you know included the now often mentioned Hammer Emporium. Uh, quote, but yes, I've seen some ridiculous stuff. It tends to be in the heat of the moment. It tends to be in the heat of the moment. Um, it's not so much uh, between officials. I think the you'd have to go a long way to beat the Dan Tictum incident, passing much of the queue uh, behind the safety car to take out the uh, car in the queue that uh, allegedly was involved in a racing incident previously. Um, Mr Tixum's career then after a lengthy ban revived and now seems to have hit the hit the, the, um, 
the blocks again. Sorry, but you know, ultimately, this is uh, at the professional level. This sports is not just a test of performance; it's a test of character. On that front, I'm afraid, I'm afraid Dan's failed for the moment. So he's got to go away, think about that, and see whether or not there's anything salvageable. Um, not that many. We actually. see a lot, don't we? Of it's usually after an incident, you see a driver run over to Marshalls and take like yank fire extinguishers off them because they don't think they're coming quick enough or trying to drive the car away when they're being told to retire it that's wrecked. We've seen a lot of that, haven't we? We've seen a lot, a bit, a lot of that. Yeah, I think you've got to bear in mind, though, the... I think when when we operate as we do as mere human beings, it's difficult to get a clear view on just the effect that adrenaline can have when you're operating at the level that an elite sportsman does. Adrenaline is a very powerful thing. Um, and then it's hilarious when things go wrong because there's that inability to regulate. The inability to self-regulate in that moment when the adrenaline is absolutely pumping. Let's face it, if you've just gone off backwards at 150 miles an hour and hit a tyre wall, let me tell you that adrenaline is going to feature a part, the part of the formula there somewhere. So I think you know you have to take that into account. And is that thing around, I'm sure any marshals listening will know, don't put hands on a driver unless you absolutely have to in a situation like that because the reality is they're probably going to take a swing uh, because there is something about that fight-flight um, you know, reaction when under extreme stress. You so, can get it from just going go-karting. If you go-kart, if you're in like any sort of reasonably competitive go-karting environment in a re- relatively quick go-kart for an hour or a half or so, mm-hmm. you get out of the car, you're almost shaking with adrenaline. Oh, yeah. That's a go-kart. Yeah, I mean, you know, try that in an LMP1 car. Generally speaking, most of these guys have learned to deal with the mental, psychological aspects of the sport, but on occasion, yeah, you you will you will see it. Um, not many, really. Not many where things have gone absolutely horribly wrong. That you know, back in back in the day, there was uh, you know pretty well documented instances of a team principal who may or may not have uh, had the name beginning with L and ending in Orange Pierce. Um, grabbing Chief Scrutineer at uh, Le Mans after his cars were refused for uh, homologation uh, infringement. We've seen some of that stuff since then. We've we've got all sorts of things that may or may not have happened in the Mercedes garage in 1999 after uh, things went wrong in a topsy-turvy, fly-through-the-air sort of way. All those sorts of things can and do happen. All human life is here. You know, let's go down the road of, of what we were talking about a little earlier. Some of the, the the bonkers stuff that happens in the pit lanes and the garages at the Nurburgring 24 hours and elsewhere. You know, people can respond badly under stress. It doesn't make them bad people. Mm. James Cantor on Facebook. What's the best launch livery you've seen? I was slightly disappointed with the Carbon Legio 320. I thought it could have shown off its curves better. Thoughts and prayers, MP. Great job, GG and SK. Keep up the great work. Thank you very much. Launch livery. What do you reckon? I'm you... thinking the original Toyota P1 car at the WC that was in the red. In the red. I really thought. I'd, I've always wanted them to actually come up for a race and just run with that red livery because it was pretty good. Lau looks pretty dated, I have to say, but I do. Does, yeah. I do think that was a pretty good livery. The hybrid livery on the Peugeot uh, was, was pretty good. It, yeah. Was pretty good. Um, but generally speaking. I'm actually quite a fan of an all-over carbon finish. Mm, the um, Ginetta P3 car looked brilliant. Didn't it just? With the little orange accents on it. Didn't it just? Yeah. I'll have to wait and see what happens uh, in a few days' time when we see what the Ginetta P1 cars will look like. Mm. Because that will be the first time they'll have been seen, seen in Team LNT colours uh, when we get to Barcelona. So we're waiting for that with, with bated breath. 
Um, lots of good ones, really. Lots of good ones. But none that spring immediately to mind. Another one to think about. Adam Smith on Facebook. Maybe this has been discussed already, so please ignore. I've seen recently talks about combining GT3 and GT into a larger GT... Um, Larger GT spec by the FIA. What are the odds this could happen, and would it be a good thing for series that run different GT specs? I think you know. Look, the the supply chain for GT cars, I'm sure, is being looked at very carefully by all those who, whether or not that's individual manufacturers, whether or not it's SRO, whether or not it's the ACO, as to what have we got, what do we know we're going to get, what might we get in the future, okay, and what are the options therein. Here is the news. You don't know, and I don't know, which manufacturers are in conversation at the moment about GTE Pro. We don't know that. We know some that have been. We know, for instance, that Lamborghini have looked at it and stepped away. We know McLaren have done the same. Um, you know, for whatever reason, in McLaren's case, probably because uh, they're thinking more carefully now about hypercar. In Lamborghini's case, because they've been looking at a whole range of matters, including DPI, for instance. But uh, the reality is we don't know which manufacturers are currently in discussion about that. For me to scream here, crisis, crisis, would be potentially foolhardy when you don't know what the answers to the questions are. The fact that we can't point to a picture of a car and say that's coming in two years' time um, is not to say that there isn't a car coming in two years' time. Do I think that GT conversions generally would be a good thing? Always to have done, always will do. Um, I think you've got to manage it properly, and I think you've also got to manage the most difficult angle within that, and that is the unlikened self-interest of the commercial parties involved in motorsport. That is the varying um, uh, priorities, not just of the manufacturers and their customers, but of the ACO, of SRO, of IMSA. They are the parties here where this will survive or won't, uh, depending on the rule set. But can you get to the stage where um, there is de facto convergence? Well, we're not a million miles away from it. The, the Aston Martin the Ferrari are proof, proof of the pudding is that. It will be interesting to see whether or not there's any concession been made in with the new Corvette to see whether or not that's the case. And whatever else emerges, clearly not for Porsche. Porsche, I think, are pretty comfortable that they've got sufficient of a customer base to go forward with the two different platforms but am i in a hurry to say my god it's a crisis let's have gt3 and no i'm not i'm really not you know we haven't even seen racing yet with just the three factory teams uh, in gte pro i'm certainly not ready yet to call a major crisis before we've seen whether or not that stacks up if it's terrible and i don't expect it will be then you can be assured that I'll be calling pretty loudly for that. But I'm not ready to call this yet. What I am ready to call here is let's learn the lessons of history. And for God's sake, if you don't have confidence motorsport, that uh, things are in, a, in shape that you can predict accurately in two, three, four years' time that this is coming along, this project's coming along, that project's coming along, for God's sake, have a plan B. Stephen Gate on Twitter. It's a question for both of you. What's your favourite sports car of all time? Mine's the Jaguar XJR14. Mine is the Audi R10. For the reason that that was the first Le Mans winner I saw. It was the first sports car race I ever went to in 2006. And I'd never seen anything like it. The only things I'd ever seen on track were touring cars and single-seaters. I'd never seen a diesel car race. I'd never seen a prototype race. And I thought that thing was mind-blowing. And it looked cool. 
It's also oddly and I was enough. so young. It was I was very impressionable, and yeah. it's still hot. You know, it's still to me that is the pinnacle. I think it's Alan McNish's favourite as well. I mm. think it, I think uh, it's Alan's favourite. I think he owns one of those cars as well. I think it's one. Does it's, he really? I think he does. He's, he's made a point of not telling me that, hasn't he? Yes, he it's probably <laughs> because he doesn't want me to bother him. I mean, <laughs> in fairness, he's got a very big kitchen. I believe he keeps it just at the back behind the tea bags. Well, you know, in the it's same as the tunnocks. It's it's not unlimited size. It's a proper full size thing. It's not the one that's up on the, on the window. Not on the window. It's not on the windowsill. No, this is a proper one. You know, but the, that has been a tradition uh, in Audi Sports years of their successful drivers being gifted a significant car uh, from their driving history. Oh, that okay. is theirs and is retained by the factory for them. Um, but can they run them? They, they can run them. They yeah, want. they can. And you know, but uh, I believe he may well have access to an R10. Mine, if I had to choose one, is the um, McLaren F1, the '95 car, short tail car that was um, with the uh, the Harris livery. That was the car in 1995 that, when I was standing trackside with my then seven-year-old son, um, was the car that we followed through that race, and it damn near won. But didn't. And I've told the story before, but I know we're picking up listeners all the time, and you are most welcome, by the way. I had an opportunity to at least be driven in and potentially to drive that car. And because we couldn't get calendars together at a critical moment, the car was sold before I got that opportunity. I will never forgive myself. Mm. No, it's a, that is a great choice. And it had one of the coolest driver lineups of oh, all time. Yeah. Nothing says more British and gentlemanly than that driver lineup, does it? Well, we've had all sorts. We had uh, Olivier Griard drove that car. Uh, uh, Justin and Derek Bell and Andy Wallace drove that car as well. Three drives at the moment. Fantastic. Fantastic. All good stuff. Jeremy Charette says, Gents, many thanks for filling in for Marshall. Just got back from New York City, so let's talk Formula E. Have either of you been to a Formula E event? If so, what did you think? My thoughts in two sentences. Hands down, this is the best value in motor racing today. It's by far the best fan experience I've ever had. Graham. Take it away. Okay. Um, no, I've not been to Formula E. I have no problem with actually saying I'm a fan of anything that increases people's access and opportunity to motorsport in any regard, and in particular to motorsport that is promoted by manufacturers and OEMs. I think on that front, they have an absolute brilliant, unique selling point. They can get to places that the rest of motorsport in this day and age cannot. I've consistently said that. I do find it a bit gimmicky. Without a shadow of a doubt, I think the racing has been better with this new generation of cars. As for the best uh, value, I guess it depends how you measure that. I know that their general admission prices are very competitive indeed, certainly depending on the race meeting. I don't know if Jeremy says what, he's, what he paid for it, but it's a tiny amount I know to get in. But I think their grandstand tickets are pretty pricey, and it's a one-day event, I think is the other thing to actually say. Uh, for me, for a long time, the best value in motorsport has been probably the Le Mans 24 hours general admission for the Le Mans 24 hours is still pretty affordable I think it's 60 to 80 euros for general yeah Yeah. Uh, that gives you access to a very large proportion of the circuits at most of the the really good viewing points doesn't give you a grandstand seat but then again you probably don't need that there is acres and literally acres of entertainment uh, places you can walk, things you can see, experiences you can soak up, including the Friday night concert, which has been free for the last many, many years, usually with a pretty good um, you know, world-class band around that. It's um, an entire week and the test day. And the test day for that same uh, amount of money. And I, I, I remember I, I was asked by 
um, a company that we we're involved with commercially at Daily Sports Car to speak to an audience in a um, a hospitality uh, lounge about the Le Mans 24 Hours and was asked a couple of questions, one of which was, why do so many British people come to Le Mans 24 Hours? Well, one, it's awesome. But two, is it's remarkably cheap and accessible as a motorsport event. Now, I've not done this calculation for many years, but certainly until relatively recently, and I can only believe it's gone in the... Uh, in the direction that it's more competitive, it was more than possible to get in your car, drive to Le Mans with the uh, fuel, tolls and the channel crossing included, buy the tickets for the people in that car and feed them um, for the race weekend. Forget the week, but for the race weekend. To arrive on the Friday uh, evening, probably having slept in the car, for instance, um, uh, sleep in the car or in a tent pitch next to the car uh, Saturday night and drive home it was possible to do that, all of that for very much less than it was to, to attend the British Grand Prix that's proper value that's, mm. you know, that, that's, it's not by accident that tens of thousands of people have made the Le Mans 24 Hours one of the most popular events for British people to attend despite the fact it's not even in our country um, it is a remarkable feat that they've not gone down the road of doubling and tripling that price. I, you know, I think it is about sixty to eighty euros, possibly now about eighty euros. It's it's quite a while ago when it was fifty, so it's not gone up that much. Mm. They have realised, I think, pretty um, comprehensively that that's not a market you want to play with. That the key to the success in terms of the crowds of the Le Mans Twenty Four Hours is numbers is get them through the gate. That's why it's so important for there to be names on that grid that people can recognise. Um, as for Formula E, uh, here's the up and the down for me. Great. I think it's great that people can actually get to a world-class event. and I hope they are world-class events, and I'm hearing they are world-class events. Um, the uh, access, the city centre access, I think is key to that. The sustainability of that is going to be based on uh, the continued... Uh, participation of not just factories but numbers of factories the proof of the pudding for Formula E is going to be how well they can sustain that not over a year, not over two years but over three to five years and if they can break that cycle then they will have achieved something that nothing uh, including Formula 1 has actually managed to do in many many years retaining a, a relatively large number of major mainstream factories with real involvement is something that motorsports traditionally really struggle with very few examples of that happening british touring cars for many years uh, managed it formula one in its pomp but now it's all a bit different um and you know we've seen the travails of uh top class sports car racing gt3 racing not the same thing just isn't that is not mainstream oems investing that is their customer racing side of things the other one that's certainly worth actually mentioning at this point simply because they do persuade the manufacturers and their retail representatives to put on a show at very many of the races imsa has managed to do that but the difference that is a national albeit a massive national that is a national operation and not an international one and that's where you hit problems I think the WC um, at times has been a bit lacking in its fan areas of some of the manufacturer interest I think they, should, they often have manufacturer stands don't they they do but they could go so much further 
I think could I think the difficulty is it is that business about so globalizing it. The world and it's globalizing it. different apartments for every manufacturer. Absolutely, you know, DTM, you know, yes, uh, have done that, but again, it's a national effort. You're dealing with one um, retail network, one distributor for a brand, not seven or eight. Mm. Uh, best display of sportsmanship and racing this is from Robert Norfolk he says on Facebook I'm currently still recovering from what's been dubbed the greatest game of cricket of all time my <laughs> god it was where my black caps had two ties with your English side these two sides have both showed the highest order of sportsmanship throughout the World Cup my question for you is what is the best display of sportsmanship you've seen in professional sports car racing I've got one for this go for it um, it would have been about three years ago um, I was chatting to Arge from Clearwater and mm-hmm. he told me the story of a GT Asia weekend where um, I think they were running yeah they were running Ferrari 488 um, and the team that was in the running for the title I believe was the oh, what's the name of the oh, BBT yep. um, had an engine failure on the first day of running they were in the running for the championship and Clearwater are a one off entrant and Mock Rensung gave them his engine and sacrificed their team's entry for the weekend and gave them the engine so they could race. You have to be, be go pretty long way to actually beat that. But we've seen heroism in the past. I mean, uh, James Winslow, uh, still very active, of course, in sports car racing, memorably in Asia, uh, whilst in a very strong position in a race in a championship, having spotted that uh, one of his compatriots, one of his, uh, his um, fellow drivers, was in trouble having had a hard impact, stopped his race car and went over to assist him. Some Guy Edwards, of course, back in the day. And, you know, some real heroism shown when motorsport was sadly rather more dangerous in real terms than it is nowadays. But, you know, you see sportsmanship all the time. Um, you know, there's, uh, I'm trying to think of the instance uh, very recently. It was what well, we saw, the um, instance of the um, Chip Ganassi racing team coming and helping their customer with the front-end change for Ben Keating's car. Um, we've seen two when uh, major teams are out of a race. In fact, we saw it with the Opel Manta, mm. uh, where the guys were um, were coming along, coming along and um, helping out to uh, fix that car in the overnight battle to actually get the car back on uh, on uh, on track. I'm trying to remember which team it was that actually came and helped them. The team that was next door to them. There was a great quote from them. It was a team running a Seat that said. Our race is going so well and so undramatically that our guys have spent all night helping to rebuild the Manta because they were based in the garage next door. And the irony there was that, unfortunately, the Seat actually crashed out in the early morning um, and the, the Manta... But, well, the Manta went on to finish, albeit unclassified. But it, it happens all the time. You could be very blasé about it, can't you? Yeah, and let's not forget as well what, that Audi, I believe, always used to invite the, um, the Peugeot and Toyota to their hospitality after the Le Mans 24 hours, after winning the race and, and clap them as they walked up the stairs. They did, and famously, actually, after all those years of battling head-to-head, uh, there's, there's TV footage of this. So it was when Persia actually finally won in 2009, and there was a TV camera actually in the garage as the team correctly you know, lost their minds in celebration. And within minutes of the flag, moments of the flag, down came... Um, Volkan Gulrik and his senior management team standing outside the garage to applaud them. That's what I want to see in my sports car race. I'm fi- sorry, apologies. Finally, the, the best example of the lot, of course, was Henri Pescarolo. When Henri found himself in trouble 
with a business partnership that went wrong and lost his company, Jacques Nicolet and his friends bought the team and the assets, bought all the cars and all the assets, and just handed it back to him. That should never be forgotten. As we mm. sit here today talking about whether or not Ligier are in trouble uh, with their LMP2 programme, do not forget that that was Jacques Nicolet. That's the, the, that's the mark of that man. That was Jacques Nicolet's uh, response to you know, an icon. Icon is a word that's massively overused, but Henri is absolutely one. That was Jacques Nicolet's response to a very personal crisis for a very honourable man that had just made a bad deal. And in this instance, I, I will personally never forget that. I think that was mm. an amazing feat of sportsmanship and, and, and camaraderie in what, you know, and that's what I value most about this sport, this part of the sport, is that human factor. You know, and I'm not afraid to say that when I heard about that, I had tears in my eyes. That was amazing to fe- feel that a man with wealth and success thought beyond himself and thought to, to his sporting you know, idol and his friend um, in trouble and handed over something of not inconsiderable value. Mm. Damien Peachman on Facebook says, Graham, what is your ideal number of cars that the Spa 24 hours should be restricted to? <laughs> Good question. Uh, back to what we had last Yeah, week. yeah, which we says 72, 73 is too many. Um, 60 felt a lot, I'll be honest with you. 50. Uh, 50, 55, I think, would be more than ample. I get it. I understand. I understand the commercial realities. I think to inform your thinking on this one, I think you had to be there when it went wrong. I Which think. Time? Uh, well, I mean, in particular, that when we had the the multiple incidents at Radion, uh, the uh, incidents in the immediate aftermath of one of those that that I thought killed Tim Mullen. I genuinely, I've said this to Tim since, I think it ended his career. It was a massive shunt, which I'm pretty certain was down to a tyre failure running through debris. Um, the, the reality, once you've seen it go that badly wrong, you don't want to see that again. Um, you know, I've got all sorts of things that, that generate my enthusiasm and my vigour about this sport, but nothing more, uh, nothing encourages me to, to develop an opinion more than when I see people get hurt. I don't want to see people get hurt for my sporting entertainment. Not ever. Uh, sometimes the inevitability is when things go wrong that it does happen. But if you've got the, the avoidable, I always want to make sure that you can possibly avoid it. It's not vanilla. It's not about let's wrap people in cotton wool. You know, I can't develop that and then say that the Nürburgring 24 hours is the most awesome race in the world. You know, it's not that. It is if you have a known known and that that is additional risk to it, then you are duty-bound, in my opinion, to start to develop a way in which you manage that risk. And I think in this instance, I hope I'm wrong, and I hope we have. I'll be there. Magnificent 24 hours of spa this year, where the issue around, uh, around safety and around strategy don't come into it, and we can just enjoy two days of racing. Um, I hope I'm wrong. But it feels... I, I am concerned at that level of cars at that level of performance on that track with drivers of mixed ability in an area where more often than not we get mixed weather conditions that that is of concern mm. the, the SRO uh, guys shouldn't think of it as a failure if they ever drop the number of no cars. no I think that you know they always say we've got record breaking entry is not as necessary it, it's it's not and I think you know the, the, I don't think it's so much the headline thing they're bothered about it's the commercial it's, it is about commercial mm. commercial yeah. viability of that series surrounds without a shadow of a doubt yeah, principally getting cars on the grid that's how they generate the income 
um, there's a point beyond which you know I'm I'm happy with the level at which that's happening, and I'm I'm at the the outer limits of that right now. Another question from Damien. He says, after last year's not so good international commentary with the Suzuka Ten Hours, have proper commentary this year? I've no doubt there will be. I think that was just a blip. Um, I think it was a bit of a blip from the race organiser mobility land, the promoters there. Um, I don't think they quite knew the marketplace they were into. Uh, certainly not. This is not having a stab at the people who actually did what they did. I think they worked with what tools they had. Um, I'll say this much. There are some fantastic offerings of live streaming products around the world in motorsport. We are luckier now than we've ever been, ever been. Um, the one gap is I've seen the offering, current offering uh, on Super GT, and I'm not massively impressed with it, to be honest with you. I think that one needs a kick up the arse. Uh, but For the, the product, it's, it's showing off, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's been better, I think is what it comes down to. However, um, full credit to SRO and their team for leading the way very much on that front in terms of their availability of a very wide range of events on you know uh, with very high quality of uh, vision um, seldom find a problem with that stream wherever it is and a pretty high quality for the most part of the commentary teams as well and I've zero doubt that there'll be some very familiar faces at Suzuka hope so because I'll be listening to them um, and you know happy to say by the way that putting the final touches to uh, what will be um, a full team from Delhi Sports Car at the 10 hours of Suzuka. Uh, that will involve my good self uh, with support from a manufacturer and we'll get some more details of that in due course. And also uh, making his first ever trip to Japan, our uh, Super GT guru, RJ O'Connell, will be joining me um, with some support from another team uh, there. So we're going to have big fun and there'll be no shortage of opinion. It's... There are so many good commentators out there, Graham, and I think it's worth saying to the listeners that as much as people bash commentary teams um, for various sports car events and motorsport events, it is an incredibly difficult job to do, and you're you know you do it regularly. And the more I hear about what it takes to be able to do that properly and do it well, the more I think that is an absolute you know it mind melting level of concentration that you need I'm dead lucky you know I'm dead lucky and I'm dead lucky for a number of reasons I'm lucky because I'm in a part of the sport that seems to welcome the kind of train spotter like um, knowledge acquisition that I've managed over the last 20 years I'm very lucky that very early on in that journey um, I was invited to uh, stand and watch those races British GT races in the in the in the past uh, in the commentary booth uh, usually with David Addison on the mic. I'm very, very lucky indeed that David handed me a mic once or twice for a little bit of feedback, and I'm extremely lucky that um, John Hindoff did the same um, just a little time later at Petit Le Mans, and that somewhere, somewhere on the line, somebody decided that they liked the voice, they liked the content, and now I do this at least in part for my living, and I work with some of the most stunningly professional individuals, not just the voices you hear, but the people behind the scenes, um, and... We are extremely lucky. I think if you were to look across all the product that is out there in terms of the uh, the visual and auditory experience you've got with all the major championships, you'd do well to point at something and say that's not up to standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's a remarkable thing to be able to achieve, and I, I still you know, in delight and wonder at the fact that you know I'm there involved now with what three four pretty major championships as a regular voice that you'll hear 
and unfortunately for Asian Le Mans uh, viewers, a regular face you'll see as well. Sorry about that. Uh, but uh, I think we're extremely lucky. And, you know, when you look back 10 years, 20 years ago, there was nothing of that kind of order. Yes, we had Radio Le Mans, and yes, um, John and Eve were beginning to rack up the uh, range of events that they were actually covering at the time, but the reality was nothing on the scale that we've now got. You and I could literally sit, you know, 18 hours a day, and never have uh, on a weekend, and never have nothing to watch that interested us in terms of motorsport. Mm. You know, the reality is we've got to be selective now about what it is we watch, which is really which hard is, to do. Which is really remarkable when you think about it. When you think beyond the norm, you can do this with with English language commentary for Addict GT Masters, for GT Open, for DTM. You can do it for um, Super Formula if you actually like. Um, you know, Japanese single-seater racing. You know, there are so it, it is the exception to the norm now that any kind of medium ranking championship or above doesn't have a free-to-air um, streaming option. And let's not forget that even sports in the UK as huge as football, once you get past the top two levels of it, don't have anywhere near the coverage that no. motorsport gets because you've got club races out there with decent commentary oh, yeah, yeah. and actual proper pictures sometimes. Yeah, and, you know, people honing their skill set as well, and you know, uh, and, you know, it, it's it is it is a tough thing to get right, and to get it right, you need two or three things. You need a passion, which I've got. You need to have people around you. Um, who are going to give you going to be kind and generous with their time and their feedback, which I've had over many years. And you need a production team, and particularly a camera team out there that just delivers the goods. And that's a great thing to see. We saw that, by the way, in the cricket as well. Amazing job. Uh, we've got a question from Mike King, which is for Marshall about photography, and I think we'll save that one for the next time that Marshall's in. M- MP will be back uh, pretty soon with us for the weekend sports cars. I know he's grateful for the um, for the, the good wishes and for the um, you know the, the time away from this that he's able to give to Chabral in, in her time of need. Needs a, needs a boy around him, about it rather uh, rather, and that's a, that's a very good thing. Lynchpin on WC Reddit says this may have been answered before, so apologies if it's due. Stupid question. Hybrid power is gaining traction in road cars, yet it's entirely absent from racing outside of the P1 class at Le Mans. What are your thoughts on why it hasn't been introduced into GT and touring car racing, and are there any plans for manufacturers to introduce it in the future? The Porsche Hybrid 911 racer a few years ago was ex- exciting as a technology platform and could have been a springboard for further hybrid development. All the best to Marshall and Sprout. Um, the answer is, it's it's regularly discussed, it's regularly rejected, and I think you've got two areas in which there's potential for it to come forward, they being GTE, slash GTLM, and GT3. And again, the difference between pure factory and uh, customer racing. Therein potentially lies the answer to convergence. Exactly that point. Could that be an area where that might prove to be the ultimate division um there is certainly a lot of kickback from a number of people involved in customer racing against introducing hybrid drive uh, into that um process because they want to keep the costs to uh you know in, in what's not been exactly a flat development curve and financial curve at that in gt3 racing they want to keep that down i think we just we're waiting for the moment when that technology becomes irresistible. You know, we're in an era now where just yesterday evening uh, in central London, Lotus took the wraps off their latest full electric hypercar with 1,972 horsepower. Think about that for a moment. Mm. You know, 
that's where we are now with EV technology. Um, and yes, you know, I, I, where we're sitting at the moment, Stephen, um, it can't be seen other than from space, but uh, in the Delhi Sports Car headquarters, just about two or 300 metres behind us, a couple of streets away, um, is Toyota GB's headquarters, hidden in the, um, in the you know, uh, behind a line of trees and attached to an old um, stately home as a, you know, 21st century type building. And very often up and down here, we'll see the latest kind of Lexus hybrid stuff, including the fantastic sports car they've got, the GT car they've got now. The reality is hybrid drive is a reality for an awful lot of major manufacturers with not just their um, uh, their top line hypercars, but actually increasingly coming down the range. I think it's coming. It's a matter of when it's coming and what will be the catalyst. And maybe the question we had earlier about the future with conversions maybe that is what's going to make the difference are we going to get to the stage where an altogether different option comes forward uh, trd sanchez on twitter says will we see the callaway corvette gt3 return to the usa um hope so uh, i have to think i think it's blown it's kind of i think the opportunity went a begging i do wonder what the future is for the callaway corvette they're clearly going to be in trouble with um, the number of sales they're going to get for that car. They're going to be running into homologation issues with it. And I wonder whether or not there might be a short to medium term solution with them with a new GT2 class. That's going to be an interesting one. Uh, we haven't caught up with that. We've been Callaway for a little wee while. Maybe that should be on your job list once we're back from Barcelona. But uh, be interesting to see what their answer is as to whether or not this is the end of the road. Uh, or whether or not they've got a plan B for that platform. Because it is a very good platform. Oh, it's a great for platform. A, for, for a car that hasn't been developed by a major manufacturer with an, an unlimited budget, it's an unbelievable bit of kit. It looks, it's got the kind of automotive equivalent looks of a punch in the face. And it's, <laughs> it's you know, and that's a good thing. Not that it's good to be punched in the face, but it's that level of drama. Um, and it, it's an awesome looking piece of kit. It would be such a shame to see that fade away. Before we go to the fun section, I'm going to go back to Baxter's question at the start. Oh, of the no. Because I, I, I have um, my favourite absurd namesake for a sports car, and that sprang to my mind, is the Panos Avezzano, which some of you may remember is named after the city of Avezzano in Italy, which was sort of destroyed by an earthquake in 1915, which spurred the immigration of Don Panzer's grandfather to America. That is an awesome name for a sports car. It, that is a racing sports car, you're absolutely right. The other one that I'm afraid bring, uh, comes to mind is one of those rather unfortunate um, areas where a clash of cultures in particular languages has an unfortunate effect. And we've seen all sorts of things in the past, things like the Toyota MR2, which translates, unfortunately, into French, and uh, the Rolls-Royce Silver Mist, uh, which translates, very unfortunately indeed, into German, uh, the Chevy and Opel Nova, which translates, unfortunately, into Spanish. Uh, but for me, the classic tale is the uh, Mitsubishi rear-drive uh, coupe from, I think, the 80s, uh, early days of the Colt Car Company in the UK and their very first offering at the kind of medium uh, area of, uh, of sports coupes and you know pretty clearly what Mitsubishi wanted what the Colt Car Company which was the car company that imported Mitsubishi's into the UK was to embody it's that pony car spirit you know you know we've had it with you know with Mustang and it's that, that kind of virility and that that performance that comes with you know, the image of, uh, you know, a thoroughbred animal. That's what they were looking for in that car. And somewhere, whether or not it was by fax or by telephone, instead of the Mitsubishi Stallion, it came across as the Mitsubishi Starion. 
Uh, hilarious. <laughs> Do you like questions, Graham? I like questions. Do you like fun? I like fun. Do you want some fun questions, then? I think you've just had the answer to that. If you combine the answers to the two questions you've just asked me, get on with it. Fantastic. <laughs> Let's go to fun, then. And the first two questions, I believe, are actually for me, so do you want Ooh. to read them out? I might want to read them out. Glasses. Uh, what's the best and worst things about working for GG, says James Wadham. Oh, God, if I haven't got, got that much <laughs> left God, this on this, a, this says this card. Um, what's the best work, uh, things about working for me? Be really careful here. I know it's going to be. This is not an easy question, is it? Shall I go and get a cup? You I'll knew go, that, didn't I'll you? I tell you what. You, you can you can ask. This this sounds to me going to make a cup of tea while he talks into my microphone in my office with my tea. Be careful. Well, it's hard to say any, any, anything worse. Um, I mean, we spend an, an abhorrent amount. You do snore, but that doesn't bother me. We have spent an abhorrent amount of time together. Yeah, and I mean that in the nicest possible way. But <laughs> there are. I think I've spent more time with you in the last seven years than any member of any of my family. Yeah. Which is amazing, really. Um, and we don't really, like, argue or bicker that much, do we? We have our moments. We have our moments, but it tends to, but it tends but, to move on pretty quickly. Um, but what can I say? It's best stuff is I get to travel the world. You know, I, I, I do exactly what I want to do. I get a lot of creative freedom to do it. I get opportunities a lot to do things that... I know most of you out there would, would absolutely love to do, and I and I never forget that that's you know an absolute privilege to be able to do. This is the sound of the kettle, it's, Paulie, by the way. That is the sound of the kettle. It's not a Lancaster. No. Yeah. Um, it's it's hard it's hard to complain when you do a job like this, um, and you often have to remind yourself of that when you're on a really really tough weekend, because it, it is a very tough job at times, um, where you have a ludicrous amount to do and not a lot of time to do it, and you've had no sleep, and that happens quite a lot, but. But it is awesome, and I'm not complaining in any way. So, you know, that's sort of the answer to the question. There's nothing really, aside from, I guess... Okay, if I'm going to pick pick a hole in Graham as a boss, it's my diet is out of control when we're in race meetings. It's out of control, and I have no self-control. And as a, as a consequence, I've probably put on four stones since I've been working for you. And even though I run practically every circuit we go to and I run between race meetings, I can't help but put on more weight. Yep. Grant, please stop feeding me, sometimes forcibly, stuff. I, I, I will remind you of that when we actually get to Barcelona. And, uh, and you say, beer and pizza, and I go, yeah, tapas. <laughs> um, yeah, well, that's a uh, that's fair assumption, and you're not fired. Uh, so that's, that's okay. Next one's for you as well, mate. Yep. Uh, it says, it's from Ryan Turpshire again. It says, um, hopefully I won't set up another so- set off another soapbox moment. Well, hopefully not. It says, you've won the lottery. What's the first thing you buy? And have you ever heard the Mazda 787B? And how does that not make the list of best-selling cars? Um, now, I've heard the Mazda 787B in a demonstration run at Le Mans. And it wasn't very loud because it was being... It was pootling along. So that, that would have been the Johnny day, Herbert year. No, Johnny Herbert drove it, drove it well, and um, with did. absolute fairness to him, uh, Patrick Dempsey uh, drove it the day before and was basically looking after the car, which is yeah. what you'd expect. You wouldn't expect him to risk everything. Johnny, um, it's fair to say, grabbed it by the throat and battered it against the wall. Good lad, good lad. Yeah, no, but I haven't heard it properly. I'd need to hear it properly. Um, what's the first car I would buy? Uh, it'd have to be my favourite road-going car of all time, which is the Maserati MC12. Ooh. So we have one of those in the showroom around the corner. Mm, here. You took it to me. It's a, oh, did I? Yeah, you took me to see it on my birthday about four wow. years ago. Uh, it says, for Graham, why are the crickets when by colours is named? Uh, <laughs> Again. <laughs> uh, um, 
I like the effort. I like at least some of the passion that's involved with it. I just don't get it. And I... Um, there's something about it I'm just not very au fait with. There's something about when you walk into the garage. It's very different to any other garage experience. There's something about it I'm just not very uh, convinced by. Um, not to say I don't get on with some of the people in the team. I do. Uh, reality is I don't get on with some of the other people in the team. Uh, I, I feel no reason to explain more than that. It's just not something that engenders a great deal of enthusiasm for me. Because mm. I think it's because the, the the main issue is they come back year after year, and yeah, they try hard, and yeah, they guys are really hard oh, yeah. guys, but they never add anything because having that car on the grid doesn't ever add to the racing. No, I mean we've seen. We've seen I think we saw we saw a fifth place finish, didn't we? At um, at Spa against other competition with a perfect run from them once uh, but you know I think they've got to come up with something that actually you're right makes a makes a telling contribution there's not the excuse I'm afraid that they're the only minnow they're not Right Turn Lover says you are tasked with assembling the ultimate combination to win the Le Mans 24 hours in terms of car brand team tyre brand and drivers the only limitation is you are not allowed to pick from previous winners Blimey well, if if you're talking about pre- previous winners, well, you can't pick a brand that's won before. I'm guessing so. That's a cracking question. So that means you are effectively restricting yourself. Nissan, but they're showing that they're not that interested. Master of one, Toto of one, Holden. No. Um... I'm going to check the question again. In terms of camera brand, the ultimate combination. Well, I think the ultimate is something a bit left field, isn't it? Mm. That's what you want. You want something that's a little bit left field, um, that probably people would be, it would be memorable. A bit like, you know, McLaren's effort with a 95 car was memorable because it was left field. It was a GT car winning in an area where they really shouldn't have done. Um, So the answer there, I guess, would be, it would be amazing to see a brand like Hyundai that doesn't really have any pedigree in sports. Maybe so. Coming come come with something new. And kill everybody. It would be amazing. Uh, that see. or a boutique brand. Yeah. Or a little brand that could. So someone like Lotus would be great. Janetta would be great. That would be amazing to actually see them come with something, um, you know, and just compete. I, I, I don't want someone to come in and dominate. I want someone to win it in a cracking battle a battle against adversity you know it's that that year where um porsche just managed in the final hour to get by the lmp2 cars mm. if that had been the last 10 can you imagine the drama if that had come down to the last 10 minutes mm. something like that but the other way around a hobbled porsche being hunted down like a wounded zebra by a pack of hyena-like orcas that would have been a fantastic finish to the Le Mans 24 hours, and it didn't quite pan out like that. For me, maybe a wounded Toyota. Maybe a Toyota that has just had something go wrong in the last hour. And maybe it's a lap and a half ahead, so two you, laps ahead. you Brown that's already won the race. No, no, no. I'm saying Toyota get beaten. Oh, right, OK. Being chased down by, let's say, Rebellion and the okay. Janetta. And the Rebellion and Janetta are battling but helping each other. So you're saying Janetta, Team L&T, which tyres are they on? 
Uh, pretty obviously, if they're, they're going to be on, I would have thought Falcon tyres because that way you can have the Falcon livery on the car. Oh, wouldn't that be good? Oh. Wouldn't that be good? And drivers? And they can't have won either. They can't have won either. It's got to be the guys that should have won and never have. Mm. It's going to have to be at least the duo of Nick Manassian, mm. Stefan Sarazan, mm-hmm. both of whom should have won that race. Um, Mark Webber. Uh, I'm going to say in this instance. Um, payback Mike Conway Mike Conway okay. should have won it this year deserved to win it this year was awesome all week was particularly awesome in the race the car was always visibly quicker when he was in that car and they're the three coincidentally Alex Cold asks what drivers and car combination could you guarantee would not finish the Le Mans 24 hours either through the car failing or drivers crashing or imploding it would be Graham Goodwin in anything he chose to actually enter can guarantee that I wouldn't finish Le Mans 24 hours I'd be knackered after 20 minutes yep that's it I mean I'd be be crap I mean you know this is again another one of these uh, returning stories I have on numerous occasions been offered the opportunity to drive indeed race race cars I won't do it because I'd be playing terrible at it um, you know, I, I'm afraid I do have the very unfortunate mix of two characteristics. I have absolutely no fear uh, in a race car, and I have absolutely no ability either. So that effect halfway there. Yeah, unfortunately, wrong half. <laughs> uh, but uh, so I, I no, no, I, I would never, never presume to even begin to approach the, those kind of levels. As for race car, there's so many race car drivers that, you know, that, that that sort of would like to think they could, but they couldn't, but I'm not cruel enough to mention them, Christoph. But he has won it. <laughs> <laughs> James Counter on race, but this is the penultimate question. Who's the hero you've met, and who's the big? who's been the biggest letdown in the uh, fresh... So, what? Two questions is that? So, the oh, apologies. No, it's one question. I've I've read that wrong. Who's the hero you've met that's been the biggest letdown in the flesh? There's a few people who are pretty dull to interview, but that's not quite the same. Well, I have no. to tell you, most of the guys that I've actually looked up to in the sport when I've met them have been awesome. I, I remember um, the first time I ever spoke to Derek Bell was actually uh, astonishing. It was astonishing that... Well, sorry, the first time I spoke to him uh, as a journalist rather than just in conversation, because I had conversations with Derek uh, before then, but the first time I picked up the phone to speak to him, it was Jackie X's 60th birthday. And I actually caught Derek getting off a ski lift in, lift in Aspen. And you kind of thought, he doesn't want to be bothered, does he? He stood at the top of that mountain for 25 minutes and we talked about Jackie X. And we talked to him as well. You've spoken to Derek before now. And so generous. Yeah, it's kind of it was a privilege to be allowed to drive a car with a man like Jackie X. Come on, Derek Bell. Yeah. So there've been very few occasions on which I've been disappointed. Look at the guys in the modern era. People like Alan McNish. People like Tom Christensen. People like Dindo Capello. Incredibly approachable. Incredibly generous with their time. Um, and we have been very lucky to have this era of drivers operating at that kind of level. There are some assholes, but they tend not to be my heroes anyway, because they're readily apparently assholes, to be honest with you. You know, I have certainly sat down with racing drivers at the very highest of levels in sports car racing, come away from it and thought, what an asshole. Frank Montelli, calm down. I mean, ludicrously um, get up his own jacksy at times in terms of the way in which he, uh, he... conducts himself with 
media. And that's not because I'm asking stupid questions. It's because he's choosing to be difficult. And, you know, it, I, I would say this. Choose your heroes wisely. Um, and they're probably not going to let you down. Then ask yourself, who are the people that I've had the opportunity to have an interaction with, you know, just as a fan, and that have impressed you? Um, I'll give you one, and only one. And I've seen both sides of this man. Um, I've been a massive fan in the past, uh, and I've seen the way that he deals with fans, and it's admirable, and it's... It's routinely admirable for him. And then I've seen the way that he can deal with the media, and it's very often quite the opposite. And that is Nigel Mansell, um, mm. who, Nigel, you know, I followed him through thick and thin in Formula One, followed his sons through motorsport, and uh, followed Nigel's efforts both in GT cars. He did a, a FIGT race at Silverstone. And was great with the fans there with CRS, I think it was at the time. I might be Scuderia Cost at the time. And uh, then, of course, the ill fated Le Mans efforts. Um, but I had a couple of occasions where, in the paddock, I had reason I felt to, to, to talk to Nigel. And I think he could have been a lot kinder in those, ex- uh, in those exchanges than he actually was. Um, and it's, it's really sad to remember him that way. And for the most part, so that's prompted me to do it. I choose not to. But, uh, Nige, I'm afraid. Final question. It's from Pierre Laurent uh, Ribble. He says, Gentlemen, hello from Japan. In wow, the spirit, In the spirit of highly entertaining question two weeks ago about the most hilarious pit stop you'd ever seen, I'd like to probe your collective memories about the best duct tape slash racer tape prepare you can remember. There have been a couple of impressive jobs in that regard during the last number of 24 hours, yep. notably the Insta Art Car BMW M4. I'm always amazed by what teams can achieve in the heat of competition with such low-tech um, with such low-tech tape, low-tech tape in our time of space-age materials and sophisticated aero. All the best to Mrs. Pruitt and Marshall. Um... I could do no better than go back into the good old bad old days of the Rolex 24 Hours at Daytona, back when we were running, amongst other things, the tube frame cars, uh, where there were regular big shunts, which meant that very large proportions of their bodywork were lost somewhere on the freeway. Um, you know, so uh, we uh, more than once I have seen cars uh, competing in the nighttime hours at the Rolex 24 Hours at Daytona. This would have been around the turn of the century. Uh, where the only forward-looking lights that they are carrying are um, flashlights and US parlance, torches and UK parlance, duct-taped to the top of the engine. Um, and that's the only bodywork that exists forward of the, if they've got a firewall, the firewall. Um, there the, the have been some spectacular instances uh, of this, with almost the whole front end of cars effectively held, uh, on. With, with, held on with tank tape or composed of tank tape, and particularly always love to see it when you've got guys knowing they've got a big repair to do, and you'll see the guys preparing those panels of duct tape and hanging them up in the garage, ready to slap onto the car. Um, these guys I, are amazing. I love it when you get teams um, or mechanics that put the duct tape on in the colour scheme of the car. And have specific coloured duct tape. Oh yeah, for the car. The Corvette do it. The guys at Falcon do it. Where at first glance you don't see any duct tape, and then when you look closely, you realise it's most of the car is now mostly duct tape, but in the same livery. Brilliant. Well, that's it then for another week in sports cars. Thanks to you, Stephen, again for giving up your time. Um, our best wishes again to Chabral and to Marshall on their journey. 
good luck to you both, you lovely, lovely people. Um, time for us to say ta-ta, time for us to shove a random selection of clothes into uh, bags before we head for a shonky flight to Barcelona uh, for the ELMS and for the WEC prologue. Uh, he was Stephen Kilby. I am Graham Goodwin, with thanks again to the Justice Brothers and to Cooper Ties. This was the Weekend Sports Cars on the Marshall Proof podcast. We'll see you next week. <laughs>